0: I love that hymn. I love that hymn when I, was a, when I was a kid and we used to sing it. We used to sing it in primary school, I remember. And it was always just such a, such a wonderful blessing. We've, um, we've been going through a, a, a short series on, um, on the coming of Messiah. It's been a short series. But it's been, a, it's been a wonderful blessing for me to go through and go through these incredible studies. And uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about it was how many different aspects of the coming of the Lord was actually spoken about already in the Old Testament. And um, and I've loved it. And I've loved how it's, how it's come together, you know. Um, there's four of them that I've got pegged. And, and the first one was the coming of Christ foretold. And we, we spoke about that right from Genesis chapter 3 about the victory that was found in Jesus Christ and, and the Lord al- already referring to that in Genesis. Um, then the works of Christ foreknown uh, and we looked at the distinguishing marks of Christ that was actually expected to be seen. and um, We saw that from the witness of John when he came and he asked, you know, are you he that should come or look we for another? You know, and he was looking at the signs, the things that actually followed Christ. Today, we're looking at the ministry of Christ foreshadowed. So we've got foretold, foreknown, foreshadowed. Next week, we're going to be looking at the life of Christ foreseen. So incredible how the I don't know. Look, I love it. I love it how even the even the uh, the titles of these messages sort of sort of work into a wonderful outline. And but when we look at this one, we we're looking at the ministry of Christ foreshadowed his ministry and how that was actually foreshadowed in the past. Now, we look at this and we have, what's the difference between a foreshadowing and that which is foreseen? Well, we'll speak a little bit more to that, to that point. Um, but we know that all of these things, all four of these issues that we looked at in the Old Testament... Um, we recognise that they are there as evidence for you that you would believe. That you would believe. That's the only reason why these things are written down, that you would actually believe. John tells us this in the first chapter. He says, The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. This is speaking about John the Baptist being a witness, but the whole point is that there is a witness. At the last, in, uh, towards the, uh, the end of the Gospel of John, in the, um, in, the, in the 20th chapter, we read this. He says in verse 31, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Nothing about our faith is based on faith by itself without the evidence that's already been found. Our salvation is based on our faith, yes, 100%. But the witness of Christ, the witness of God, the witness of the reality of the Bible, that is evidential. It's evidence right through. And an open mind and a mind that can actually see it for what it is will see it for what it is. And it's an incredible blessing. So before we get into our study this morning, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do, dear Lord, give you... Thanks, dear Father, that you would encourage us, Lord, through your word. We pray, dear Father, that this morning would be a wonderful blessing to us. Please, dear Lord, that your spirit would move among us. That you, dear Father, would illuminate our hearts. And that you, dear Lord, would open our eyes. And that we might be excited about the wonderful joy of our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ. Please, I pray, dear Father, open our eyes and open our hearts to receive the blessing of the Lord at this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We can't underestimate the work of the Lord being done within our lives, you know, even when it comes to preaching or sharing the Word of God. We can't underestimate the Spirit of God and His work. He doesn't just guide the teaching, He, he, he illuminates our own heart. You know? So it's so important always to make sure that He's involved. What does foreshadow mean? And the foreshadowing of an event differs from that which is foretold or foreknown. Uh, and it's a practical picture of things which are to come. Um, it's something that's enacted in time past, and it might even be enacted within certain ceremonies or rituals. It's something that's physically done to that's a shadow of things to come. Okay? And that passage that Brother Kest um, read this morning, we're going to go through a little bit more again. Um, But it is a shadow. It's a picture of things that were in the Old Testament, things that were done back then, all pointing to the ministry of Christ. He says truly, he says that the volume of the book is written of me. And that's what we want to see. We expect to see the volume of the book written of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, turn in your Bibles, please, again, to the book of Hebrews, which we looked at this morning. The book of Hebrews and chapter 9. When we, when we think about Christianity, and make sure you keep your finger in Hebrews, because we're going to be going back there. It uh, doesn't matter where else we go in the Scriptures, we're going to be turning back to the book of Hebrews. The two main books we're going to be touching on a little bit, will be Isaiah and Hebrews. But, um, you know, it's a wonderful picture when you think about... People ask the question, what is Christianity? What is Christianity? The best way to answer that question is Christianity is what the Bible teaches. Christianity is simply what the Bible teaches. Christianity is not based on the acts and the beliefs of those who, are, who say that they are Christians. It is what the Bible teaches. The volume of the book is written of Christ. It's written of Christ. And we're going to see it here. And I want you to have a look at the words. There's a there's a handful of words here that 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 really mean a foreshadowing. They refer to a foreshadowing. So see if you can pick it up as we go, and I'll bring it I'll bring it to mind. Reading again from verse 19. It says therefore when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. And then verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us do you see those those few words there Hebrews is speaking about something that had happened in the Old Testament, a setting up of sacrifices, a setting up of the tabernacle, and he says that these are patterns of things in heaven. That this is a figure of things that are true. That's what he's referring to there. Okay? So you can see that's what I mean by foreshadowing. They came prior to Christ, they foreshadowed Christ. Then have a look at verse 10, uh, chapter 10, the first verse there. It says, therefore, the law having a shadow of things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because of the worshippers, once purged, should have no more conscious of sins. So you recognise that? So these things, these purgings every year being made were only a shadow a shadow, a picture of that sacrifice that would be given that would be once and for all. That's what that is. It's just a shadow. It's teaching. It's a teaching of the people about the truth of Christ, he that would come. So what we're looking at this morning, and we're seeing these patterns, these figures, these shadows are referring to um, those things concerning Christ and those things that were acted on the past. First one was the offering, okay. Paul here is in 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 Hebrews is recalling what Moses referred to in the law and the sacrifices of those things that should be offered for sin. He says in verse twenty three of um, of of chapter nine, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified. And it's a pattern. It's a pattern. You know when when Moses went up. Uh, to the mount that burnt with fire. He didn't just come down with the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God on stone. He didn't just come down with that. He also came down with what he saw in heaven concerning the tabernacle. And he... It's almost like he came down with architectural drawings, isn't it? God had actually described to him perfectly how he wanted that tabernacle fashioned. And we're going to be speaking about the tabernacle. And that is referring to the presence. The presence of God among his people was found in the tabernacle. It says in verse 24, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. The tabernacle and the temple are figures of the true. Figures of the true. And there's a distinction as well, guys. There's a distinction as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit more too. Between that respecting the tabernacle and the distinction between that and the temple. And that's exciting to see. Both of them represent Christ, but at two different points. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit. So I hope you really stay with me as we go through this. So he tells of this as a figure of the true. A figure of Jesus whose offering was made into heaven itself once and for all time. The things that, that Christ did on earth have a direct relationship with what occurred in heaven. Okay? Its enactment was accomplished on earth in time. Its establishment was made in heaven for all eternity. For all eternity. What happened in the tabernacle and the later temple and all things associated with it was a picture of Christ and his ministry. And then you've got the nature. We're going to pick up the nature of this ministry. It's hinted of here in, as in the high priest. Okay, the high priest is mentioned here. It's hinted of here. We're going to be seeing the nature of Christ, this high priest, clearly represented in the seventh chapter of, of, um, of Hebrews. So we have three points. That was by way of introduction. So three points we have. Foreshadowed was the offering of Christ. Foreshadowed was the presence of Christ. And foreshadowed was the nature of Christ. These are all there in your bulletin, and I've, I've put in there scripture verses as well so you can follow that up in your later studies. Our first one, foreshadowed was the offering of Christ. The beginning, beginning of your book, Genesis, have a look at there. The fourth chapter, we see from the earliest point, we had just the fall of man. Man had fallen. Man had fallen in rebellion against God. And we have the, the first, our first parents, we have Adam and we have Eve, both of them in a fallen state. They have now conceived and they've borne children. And we see a picture of the foreshadowing of the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ in what had occurred here in the fourth chapter. Have a look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man-child from the Lord. And she again bare... His brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought forth of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Adam and Eve. Here we have the the true representatives of humanity. They were those who represented the entire human race. And they were created good. Actually, when the Lord had finished all he created, he called them very good. And that's how they began. So in the eyes of the Lord, they were good and they were very good. But they both despised that good way of God. And they rebelled against him. And they desired something for themselves which was not good. A knowledge which was not for their benefit. And thinking somehow that God had withheld something from them to be as God's knowing good and evil. This deceptive thought was given them and they embraced it as as true. They rejected the word of God that they were supposed to accept by faith. So we accept the word of God by faith. They rejected the word of God that they were supposed to accept by faith. But instead of the words of God, they ended up believing the words of the deceiver by that same faith. So the things that you're told, you either accept or reject, but you do so by faith. You either accept those things by faith or you reject them by faith. This is not the way of doing it because you have no idea of knowing whether or not those things are true. So God commanded and he said not to do certain things. He says, if you do so, you will die. And it was something that they had to accept by faith. In the end, they were deceived. They rejected it also by faith and they believed the words of a deceiver. Now, they tried hard to cover their sin as well as their nakedness. They chose for themselves the fruit of the field to girt themselves with fig leaves they tied together until there was a sufficient amount to cover all that they could see with their own eyes that was offensive. But God's eyes wasn't satisfied with their covering. God wasn't satisfied with their covering. To him they remained naked and bare. Eventually they were told that the fruit of the field wasn't going to be sufficient to cover them. It's not going to be sufficient as a covering for them. So God covered them only with the shedding of innocent blood. He covered them first off with the skins. And notice, God clothed them with skins. Not they themselves. They didn't clothe themselves. This text tells us that God clothed them with skins. We have here the first instant of the Lord replacing the vanity of man with the wisdom of God. In the least, we might see a foreshadowing of the type of offering here. A covering of our own nakedness before him. Just a small one. But that's not really the one that I want to be dealing with. See, the children of Adam knew the sin of their father. They knew the sin of their father and they also knew their own sin. They knew that which was to be offered also for a covering of their sins because they have a practical effect in both Adam and Eve. Okay, so the practical foreshadowing of a covering for their own sin was found in Adam and Eve the shedding of innocent blood they knew this but in our passage it seems that both gave of the fruit of their, of their labour you notice that it's, it, here, here in verse 3 it says in the process of time it came to pass that Cain now Cain's the older brother he's the older brother of Abel Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord and Abel he also brought of the first thing, firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. The fat thereof. Notice that, that phrase, the fat thereof? Uh, that actually refers to the best. It refers to the prime. It refers to the best part of the flock. That's that, what that phrase actually refers to. And you'll see that elsewhere in Scripture. The fat of the land. He gave him the fat of the land. In other words, the best part of the land. And that's exactly what's happened here. So Abel chose not just the lamb. He chose the best. He chose that without spot. Oh, we see that later on, don't we? When we're looking at the lamb of God, he was to be without spot. The fat thereof. So while you've got your finger in... Um, uh, while we're looking at that, have a look at... Um, in Hebrews, back to Hebrews, chapter 11. We're having a look there. Because here, here... The author gives us an understanding of what this offering was. You get a picture that it's a tithe, don't you? You'd almost think that it's a tithe. What did Cain do? He gave of his own fruit. He was a farmer. Make sense? Abel was a shepherd. So the first time I looked at it and I thought, oh, yeah, Abel gave of his sheep because he's a shepherd and Cain gave of his fruit and vegetables because he was a a farmer. Yeah, okay, yeah, cool, that makes sense. So why was his... Rejected. Why did he get angry? We find it here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. In Genesis, it says offering. Here it says and gives us the explanation here that it was a sacrifice. A more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. See, the offering wasn't a a type of tithe of labour, but a sacrifice for sin. That's what that offering was. And it was to be a lamb. It was always to be a lamb. Cain was expected to know this, but to go to his little brother and to purchase a lamb for his own offering, he wouldn't do. He wouldn't do. Typical pride that might come in the older brother's heart. He wouldn't do this. So we can't know the exact motivation for Cain's offering, but we can know that the reason why his offering was not accepted was because his works themselves were evil. Were evil. First John chapter 3 says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. From the beginning. We're talking about these foreshadowings. They happened at the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Abel Abel sacrificed a lamb, a symbol that is um, going to stand for all history. Here we've got a lamb of Abel, sacrificed to take away his own sin, a foreshadow of the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Abel offers to take away his sin. A picture of the Son of God who will take away the sin of the world. (coughs) You know, it's incredible. What's really exciting is that that's the first picture that we get of a lamb being sacrificed. Do you know what the next picture is of a lamb being sacrificed? The very next one? It actually happens many, many chapters later. It's still in Genesis. But Genesis, chapter 22. Yeah, that's right. Abraham. 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 Genesis chapter 22. Turn there with me, please. Here in Genesis chapter 4, a shepherd offers a lamb by faith. A shepherd offers a lamb by faith. In Genesis 22, a father offers his son in the place of a lamb by faith and obedience. Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. We'll have a look from verse 7. It says, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God saying that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. And it is said to this day, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Well, we, we could spend so long in this passage. <laughs> so I'm only going to give you a few points. A few points of reference that you might be able to link back to Christ. An important one is that a father was to sacrifice his only begotten son. That phrase, only begotten son, is only spoken of respecting two people. The son of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and Isaac. And that's in Hebrews eleven seventeen, the only begotten Son, His only begotten Son, verse seventeen that has that same phrase, the Son. Interestingly, Isaac. You get a picture. Do you get a picture? What, how old do you reckon Isaac is in this picture? Your normal picture within your mind. Abraham got him and laid him on the on the wood, and the first time I looked at it, I thought he must have only been about you know twelve maybe, you know ten or twelve years of age. He's not. He's not 10 or 12 years of age. He's between the ages of 30 and 35 years old. Now, yes, it says him as a lad. But you know what? Benjamin was also referred to as a lad. He was already married and he had three boys. When he was referred to as a lad. Take the lad and go into Egypt. Take the lad and go. But he was already a man with children at that time. That's how he came into Egypt. So... When you look at the timing of it as well, and you look at the timing of it in the, in the Old Testament, you see that he can't be any younger than 30, and he might not be much older than 35. Jesus was 33 years of age when he gave his life, as far as we are aware of. So There's a good chance Isaac might have been about the same age. But you'll notice something. If he is between the ages of 30 and 35, and his father is therefore about hundred and thirty. To 135. What physical strength do you think Abraham might have had to have grabbed his son and forcefully laid him on the wood and bound him? Not many, not much strength. Isaac obeyed his father. He obeyed him even unto death. He obeyed him. This is a picture of Christ. Christ obeyed the Father, even unto death. It's a foreshadowing of what would happen. The third point is that the son was offered on a mount entitled prophetically. It's entitled Jehovah Jireh. Now, God gives us the meanings of these um, phrases, these names. He always does in scripture. He gives us his interpretation of what that means. And guess what it is? It's named prophetically. It means in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Now a lot of your commentaries would say that it's the Lord will provide that that's what it refers to, but but God has given another interpretation here. He's given it. He says he says there, and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day. Quote. Notice the capital letter. All right. In the Mount of the Lord it shall be seen, In the Mount of the Lord it shall be seen. That's interesting, because point four. The later name of this mount was Mount Moriah. Its name originally was Mount Moriah. Located, later located in a city called Jebusi. Okay. The Jebusite city didn't exist at this point. Remember? Abraham came in and he came into a wilderness. There was no city there. And he found this mount, Mount Moriah, and he named it in the mount of the Lord. It shall be seen. Now, at the top of the mount... It wasn't halfway down, it was at the top of the mount. That city was later taken by King David and it was renamed Jerusalem. That mount, Mount Moriah, is today called the Temple Mount. It's the very same place that the temple that God had built was, was, was founded. We know that because the Bible actually tells us this. It goes through it. I'm not making this up. This place was known as, it was originally known by of the Jebusite. And it was purchased by King David. He purchased the place and he purchased the land. The place was the bedrock, was the place where he would, he would, um, he would fan his wheat. We stood there. Remember? There was that little thing that was actually made around there. Mind you, the, the, um, the Islamic... Um, mosque was way off and then we we stood there on the bedrock and it's likely that that was the threshing floor of aruna how incredible is that so it's named prophetically and we discover the temple was actually built there and jesus crucified not very far away and the mount of the lord it shall be seen the fifth point and this is an interesting one Isaac's not mentioned again until he is united with his bride. He's not mentioned again. And you have a look at verse 19 of that passage in, uh, in Genesis. It says, So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Isaac's not mentioned again. He's not mentioned again. He's actually not mentioned again for another couple of chapters and towards the end of the chapter. Chapter 24 of Genesis, verse 62. That is where Isaac again again appears and is united to his bride. Can, Can you see any links here? What do we see that Christ has done? Christ was offered as the Lamb of God. He was the Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. And he was offered for the sins of the world. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, it was offered there. And then he's gone. He's not going to be appearing again until he's united with his bride. That's us. Never thought of myself as a bride. But there you go. (laughs) There you go. We are going to be united to the Lord and Isaac is a foreshadowing of that event. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you of the Son of God, will you be united to him? Will you be really, truly united to him? The second point is foreshadowed was the presence of Christ. So the passage we looked at helps us segue into this presence of Christ that was foreshadowed in the tabernacle of God. It's a pattern that God had shown Moses. We spoke about that um, and there's seven things that I want to bring out with respect to the tabernacle and how that foreshadows Christ. You ready? Okay, we'll have a look at them. The first one is the site of the tabernacle. The site of the tabernacle. There was nothing pleasant about the surroundings of the tabernacle. Nothing pleasant about it. Everywhere it went seemed to be barren and waste, and the people murmured time and again until water was given out of the rock And until bread was rained down from heaven, the place itself was barren. There's so much to say about this that foreshadows even this, but we've got enough to deal with here. The tabernacle was built to be with the people through a hostile and a barren land and only for a time until they come to their own home. They then transferred that rugged tabernacle into a glorious temple. Remember? Okay, so they had the tabernacle only in the wilderness. But when they were come into the land, that later tabernacle, that earlier tabernacle, was then not used anymore, and the glorious temple was to be built. But God would be with them, and he would be the one that would lead them into the promised land. Okay, are we following so far? I hope so. He would be with them into the, forest, into the promised land. Christ was sent to a barren people, who were hostile toward him. Here he would dwell for a time. Jesus is that water of life. Jesus is that bread from heaven. So we have the water given to them out of the rock, and we know Paul speaks about that rock that followed them in the wilderness was who? was Christ, wasn't it? Paul says it was Christ. As God led the people through the tabernacle, so too Christ leads our lives through this earthly wilderness until we enter into the promised land. And that promised land is to be with the Lord in heaven. Second point is the splendour of the tabernacle. So the first one was the sight of the tabernacle. The second one is the the splendour of the tabernacle. What's really interesting about the tabernacle, it's pretty plain on the outside. Nothing much to say on the outside. It looked pretty plain, nothing spectacular. Interesting, we have a picture of Christ in Isaiah 53. And it said, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Nothing pretty about Christ on the outside. Nothing beautiful about the Lord Jesus. We see these wonderful pictures, don't we, sometimes, of the Lord Jesus Christ with... Blonde surfy hair and blue eyes and you know, this nice stubbly beard, and looked very attractive. But according to the Bible, there was nothing nothing necessary that would draw us to him. He was a very plain looking individual, looked like any other Joe. But he was glorious inside. And first John fourteen says that that says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. The tabernacle was beautiful on the inside. It wasn't ugly on the inside. It had gold covering the walls. It was spectacular to look at on the inside. So is Christ. He was glorious in his true state. G.J. Butler says this with respect to this particular passage. He says, Only those which served in the tabernacle knew about the inward glory. And only those who served and were devoted to Christ in his first coming knew about the greatness of his glory. That glory is not seen by carnal eyes. He says it is a spiritual glory, the greatest glory of all. It is the beauty of holiness in Psalm 96.9, which natural man cannot see and does not value. Natural man is all taken up with the tinsel of this depraved world. What a good quote. What a good quote respecting that. The third point respecting the tabernacle is the seeking at the tabernacle. The seeking at the tabernacle. Christ is he to whom we go to meet with God. Right? The Bible says that there is one mediator between God between God and man, the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy five two uh, five. And Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near in Isaiah 55. So we are seeking God through Christ. But in the tabernacle, they sought God through the tabernacle. That's where they went to meet with God. They went to meet with God in the tabernacle. We meet with Christ. And he is the one that is the mediator between God and man. The fourth one is the speaking at the tabernacle. Speaking at the tabernacle. This is the place where God not only met with Moses, but the place where he had spoken to him face to face. Numbers 12 says, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently And not in dark speeches and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold in Numbers 12, 6 to 8. In just manner, when God was manifest in the flesh, in 1 Timothy 3, 16, and dwelt among us, Jesus revealed the way to God for us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, you've still got your finger there. In the Old Testament, in those times, God had spoken to man. He was speaking to men through that tabernacle and through that witness. He also spoke through prophets. He didn't speak face to face even apparently. He didn't speak in this way. But in, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, respecting Christ, in verse 1 it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So we find here God now speaking to us by his Son. The tabernacle that God dwelt with his chosen people spoke to Moses face to face. And Jesus Christ, God, dwelt on earth and now speaks to us through his word. And more than this, he abides in us. He abides in us to move us to do His will. God made His dwelling within the tabernacle. To those who are born again, Jesus makes His dwelling within us. Is that interesting? So God makes His dwelling within the tabernacle, but to those who are born again, Jesus makes His dwelling within us. In John fourteen, it says, "I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that ye may abide, that He may abide with you forever." Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because he seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Revelation says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. The tabernacle of God is with men. The fifth one is the sacrifices of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where all the sacrifices of sin were made. Christ is where all the sin of the world is laid. Let me say that again. The tabernacle was the place where all the sacrifices for sin was made. Christ is where all the sin of the world is laid. God's people were charged to bring the sacrifice for their own sins into the tabernacle. The high priest, after cleansing himself, would then make an offering of that sin for the people. This was also to foreshadow the sacrifice of Christ, the Son of God who offers himself as a lamb without spot and without sin for the sin of the world. How much better is it? On the one hand, you've got a picture of the the high priest and the high priest is offering for himself because he needs to cleanse himself. Then he offers once a year for the people, for their cleansing, for their sins. This is done every single year. Every year. But it was a picture of that one-time offer of the Lord Jesus Christ for all people and for all time. One hand, it was offered every year for some. For some. For the Jews. But in Christ, it was offered one time for all. Do you see that, You see those, those, those links with, with respect to that? It's always been there to show us about Jesus Christ. To show us about who he is. Sixth point with regards to this part, we are sustained by the tabernacle. What's really interesting is in the tabernacle, the gifts were brought in to sustain those who served in the tabernacle. The gifts were brought in. So the food was brought in. Money was brought in. These things were brought in to sustain those who did the service of the tabernacle. So they were actually sustained by the very work that they did. Similar to that picture. Remember that picture about the oxen who treads out the grain? Right? So he's actually sustained by the very grain that he's treading out. That's why it says, do not muzzle the ox while he treads out the corn. Why? Because he needs to feed himself of that corn while he's treading it out. But we are known as the servants of God. We serve a living saviour and we do so willfully. And we are completely sustained by Christ. Throughout scripture, we are referred to as being in him, in Christ. Isn't it interesting? On the one hand, Christ is in us. But on the other hand, in a very real sense, we are also in, in him. Jesus, uh, speaking of Jesus, 1 John 2.5 says, Hereby know we that we are in him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. So as much as the Spirit of God shall be in you, so too are you in Christ. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, that is the true God and eternal life. Therefore, being in him, we are sustained by him. Jesus actually said this. He says, He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The spiritual sustenance sought by the world, I want you to think about this. The spiritual sustenance sought by the world is of less value than the husks eaten of the pigs in the story of the prodigal son. That's the spiritual sustenance that the world wants to offer you. And we're in a building that, that shows so much of that. That's what they want to try and offer you. But they're worthless. They are worth less than those husks that the, uh, that the pigs were eating. right? Because at least that had some nutritional value. This other stuff doesn't. But the feast that we have in Christ is food indeed. He, said, he says, my blood is drink indeed. My body is food indeed. And we're talking about a spiritual food. And a spiritual drink. Remember when he came to the woman at the well and he says, he, she, he that drinks of the water that I will give him will drink of everlasting. It'll be a spring of water leading up into everlasting life. And she asked him, she understood what he was saying. Well, show me this water that I don't have to come here to, to, to fetch to, for water to drink. You know, that's what she was looking for. Jesus is the one who sustains us. Okay. Sustained by the tabernacle. Our Lord is our tabernacle. And the last one, the setting of the tabernacle. The setting of the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle itself was, was to be set in, in, in the middle of the camp, right? So if, you, if, you, if you've ever seen the pictures of that in Numbers, you see the tabernacle set in the middle of the camp and the tribes were to actually camp in direct proportions on either sides of that of that tabernacle but the tabernacle is in the midst of the camp we have to set Christ in the midst of our own heart it's the same thing with the lord for us he has to be the midst of our lives he has to be the one set as the highest priority as the highest goal as the highest hope and as the highest joy he is the one that fulfills us he sustains us he gives us strength he gives us encouragement He grants unto us peace. He gives us wisdom. We set him not on the peripheral, not as a side issue, not as something that we just do once every single week, but we set him in the midst of our lives, right in the middle, right in the middle. And that's where he should be set. The setting of the tabernacle was in the midst of the camp. The setting of Christ is in the midst of our lives. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is important. Paul said this. He said, for me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. To live is Christ. And that's how we need to live, guys. There's a lot of distractions. I know that. I know that. I I live in the same world that you guys live in. You know, there's a lot of distractions. But if you take Jesus out from the midst of our life, then we're going to get overwhelmed by this world. We're going to get, uh, get overwhelmed. The promised land isn't here. You know, it's not here. He's the one that leads us. God calls us to trust him. He moved the people. You know, when when the tabernacle was in the wilderness, when God moved, they moved. When he stopped, they stopped. When God moved and then stopped, he might stop for years, a few years. Remember, they travelled in the wilderness for 40 years, but sometimes it was only for a few days. When you're seeking after the Lord... When you're asking Him to to show you direction, to give you guidance, when He moves, you move. When He stays, you stay. Wait. Wait. Be patient. The Lord moves in His time. Do you notice that in Numbers? It was in His timing, not in yours. Do you think they weren't agitated and getting a little bit frustrated? They put me in this wilderness. There's no water, there's no food. All we have is this manna to eat. You know, and they do all these different things with the manna to make it somehow, you know, something different each day. You know, sometimes they grind it into meals. Sometimes they mixed other things with it and they rolled it up. They baked it. They boiled it. They did all these different things. So it looked like at least they're getting some sort of a change. But their surroundings at times didn't change. Guys, to you, your surroundings for a long time might not change. Everything around you might not change. But, you know, when the Lord is in the midst of the camp, when he's in the middle of your heart, there is a change happening. There is a change happening within you. Sometimes when God moved, it was for war. Sometimes when God moved the camp, it was into a battle. It's the same thing in our lives. The Lord is moving us. And sometimes when we move, it might be a battle. There might be a few things going on. There might be some trials that we're going to need to face, some Goliaths that we're going to need to stone. You know, sometimes it's into a battle, and sometimes it's into peace. Sometimes it's into a wonderful place where we can rest in the Lord. This, this, this setting of the tabernacle is really important, and it's also a foreshadowing of Christ. And that's why we need to have God to be the one to lead our lives and not ourselves. The last point in the message, foreshadowed was the nature of Christ. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to have here an introduction of an individual. And it's the nature of Christ as a high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 10. 8 to 10. It says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all of them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here we learn the nature of Christ and his continued work was to have them trust in him and his nature was as a high priest what does that mean it's a foreshadowing of this individual called Melchizedek you heard of Melchizedek Melchizedek is an interesting guy he appears at a particular point in history and it's a a point that happened after a severe battle and it was a severe battle that was actually performed by Abraham Abraham ended up disposing of I think at least four maybe five kings individual kings How did he do that? He did that with 300 servants who were born in his own household. Abraham had his own army. And they took these kings and they slew them. And he was able to retrieve his nephew Lot, who happened to have been taken captive by them. And after this, in Genesis 14, he meets with this king, Melchizedek. He was a king, the Bible says, king of Salem. And he offers to him tithes. He gives an offering to this milk, isn't he? In the Old Testament, it really doesn't give you much of a picture of who this guy is. Really, we don't have a clue in the Old Testament. We know that he was a priest. We know that he was a king. Very few people are priests and kings. This individual was a priest and a king. That's all we know about him in the Old Testament. And that Abraham gave him tithes. So this man was obviously counted greater than Abraham. Because Abraham's offering to this man. Tithes. Of all that he had. The only time it comes up again is in Psalm 110. And here it speaks about the Lord himself arising after the order of Melchizedek. Really strange. If all you had was the Old Testament, you'd be a little bit confused, not knowing who this individual is. But if you can grasp the incredible nature of Christ foreshadowed here, it's going to amaze you about his ministry and work. And it's well summarised. In, in the title of this sermon, The Ministry of Christ Foreshadowed here in, in Melchizedek. You're in chapter 5. Turn to chapter 6 of Hebrews. Chapter 6 of Hebrews. We're going to skip through a few things. We're only going to be working through the, through the text here. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It says there, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth, in, entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, it comes up again. Continue reading, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, here we have a description of him. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning for the from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father. What? Without father. This is Melchizedek. The text here tells us he was without father. He didn't have a father. Who doesn't have a father? Who alive doesn't have a father? Here it says he doesn't have a father. This says without mother. Without mother... Hang on, I thought all men born of women are born of women. Without father, we have... without mother. This Melchizedek is without father and without mother. Without descent. There's no progeny. There's no children to this Melchizedek. Melchizedek. He didn't have kids. Who? What? Who on earth is this? There's not too many people that fit the Bill of History with respect to Melchizedek here. Who could this be? Having neither beginning of days... What? Not beginning of days? You mean he is from old, from everlasting? Who is this Melchizedek? Nor end of life. And then it says here, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now, I'm not going to belittle this. There is an amazing amount of of, uh, controversy respecting who Melchizedek is. Okay, there are very few people that actually see this as a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very few. They, they, they don't take some of these words literally and they try and place him as somebody else. But it's a difficult one to draw out. But you need to draw it out logically. We don't know of anyone else that fits this description other than Christ. But here we have him made like unto the Son of God. But what we have here is a foreshadowing, at the very least, of who Jesus Christ is. And we're looking at his ministry. So move down to verse 11 of chapter 7. (coughs) Because this is vitally important that you understand this. That you understand this. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? You got that? So, so if by the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law, if they could be made perfect under the law, under the law, if they could be made perfect, was there another need for another priest to order to, to come up? There's no need. So what does that tell you automatically? About the law. Can it make you perfect? Can't make you perfect. So under the Levitical priesthood, the law cannot make you perfect. So there had to arise another one after the order of Melchizedek. And it says there in verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Now then, move down to verse 15. I'm not skipping these ones on purpose. I'm just skipping them because they fill in some other areas that are going to distract us. So move down to verse 15. It says, And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of the similitude, notice that, the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment but after the power of an endless life for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. When something's disannulled, what happens to it? Disannulled, it's actually written out. Okay, It's something that is actually taken out. It, it, it's, um, we see that with respect to... Uh, Marriage and, and divorce. Divorce is a little bit separate from a disannulling of the divorce. Okay, A disannulling of the divorce effectively means that the marriage never happened. Make sense? And that's usually something that happens within is the first year. The, f- the first year there is a, there is a, a, a disannulling, an annulment. Yeah? We call it an annulment. The same, it's the same thing an annulment, it's a disannulling of that as as if it never existed as if it was never part of it. So here we have this, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before because of what? Because it was weak and it was unprofitable and there it says here and explains it, verse 19 for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. Now we're going to conclude it with this last This last verse, last passage here. Because the nature of Melchizedek, remember he was a priest, how long? Forever, yeah? Forever he was a priest. Have a look down, down at verse 22. It says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So why was there so many different priests? I died. <laughs> makes sense. You need a new high priest. Why do you need a new high priest? Well, the last one died. So we need another high priest. And why do you need another one? Because he died. All right? So it makes sense. By reason of death. But this man, whose man? Which man? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. To what extent can Christ save us? To the uttermost. To the uttermost. You know, when you speak about going and travelling to the uttermost ends of the earth, you're going to the places furthest away from you. You know? To the uttermost. As far as it can. It cannot go any further. You cannot go any further than the uttermost. Jesus saves us to the uttermost. There is nothing else you need to do but accept Christ and he saves you. This is part of that security within our salvation that we have. To the uttermost that came unto God by who? By Christ. Then he says this in the last part of that that verse 25. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What is the ministry of Christ? What is the ministry of Christ? He's a high priest. Jesus Christ is a high priest who is making intercession for those who he died for. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ found in Melchizedek. A character who appears very obscurely in the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ is a foreshadowing of him. So what we have all the way through this are shadows of Christ. More and more foreshadowings of the Lord Jesus Christ in different aspects of him, in who he is. We see him there. We see him foreshadowed. His offering was foreshadowed. The offering of Christ was foreshadowed. We saw it in in Abel, the younger brother of Cain. We saw it in in Isaac, the son of the only begotten Son of His Father. The one who He loved. The first time the word love turns up in Scripture is that passage. Respecting Abraham and His Son. It's the first time the word love appears. It doesn't appear before that. Interesting. You think the Bible's always got something to say? Even in some of the things that seem a little bit obscure, it says something, you know, when you look at the structure of it. And then we have the nature of Christ was foreshadowed. All together, all of these bring out the ministry of Christ that was foreshadowed. All of this brings that forth. He was an offering, absolutely an absolute offering. He is our tabernacle. He is who we dwell within and He within us. You know, Peter speaks about there's going to be a coming a time where I'm going to put off this tabernacle. Well, what's a tabernacle? A tabernacle is a physical dwelling place that also contains something. And Peter has... God within. So do you if you know Christ. God is within you. So he speaks about the presence of Christ that way. And then the nature of Christ, what he continues to do. And he continues to minister to us. And He ministers for us on our behalf before the Father. Guys, in this you're more than conquerors, you know that? You are more than conquerors. You know What I don't want you to do is I don't want you to let the world get to you. But I do hope and pray that you would grow in that peace and that comfort of Christ and that you would share Him with others, that they might have that hope. Hope Baptist Church. We want to have more people have hope. And that's what we desire to do, but we need to share Christ. So we've got all these things that we're going through with respect to December, and um, and it's a wonderful time to be sharing. Let's, Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, dear Lord. So many things, dear Father, of old that picture the coming of Christ. And we know that when Messiah cometh, he shall tell us all things. And you have come, and you've shared with us your words, that we might have life and that we might rejoice. And we pray, dear Father, that you would continue to be a blessing to us. Help us focus our attention upon you. Help us gain all our sustenance from you. And I ask you, dear Father, please, that you would... Grant us that peace and that wisdom that we need to be able to share the Lord Jesus Christ to all people. And if, dear dear Lord, there are those here, dear Father, don't know you, how I pray and ask, dear Lord, that you would continue to prick their hearts, that they may indeed see you for who you are and that they might give their life to you completely. The evidence of who you are, dear Lord, foreshadowed, foreseen, foreknown. We see that, dear Lord foretold within Scripture. And I ask you, dear Father, you would quick their hearts indeed that they may come to you. I give you praise and give you thanks, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.